Almighty God, you alone are our eternal Redeemer. For in Christ alone are we brought near, purchased with your precious blood, and secured for eternity in heaven. For only in Christ and his sacrifice can we with pure conscience abandon the dead works in order to serve you, our living God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy which brought us near. O Lord, open our hearts to receive the truth of your word this morning. Lord, reveal to us the gravity and the danger of our besetting sin and root it out through the power of the gospel. Turn us from our own self-help, self-esteem, self-righteousness to revel in all the good things that we have in Christ. Would you produce, Lord, repentance where hardness is found? Faith in the places of our heart where there's doubt. Hope in the places of despair. Love in the places of criticism. Peace in the places of anxiety and turmoil. And joy in those places of dread. Accomplish these great blessings in us this morning, O Lord Jesus Christ, for your glory and for our good. For it is is in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. John Bunyan is an English Baptist Puritan. He's most noted and most well known for his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which as of just about maybe a dozen years ago, I looked and I haven't looked since, but as of about a dozen years ago, second, second only to the Bible in way of the number of copies sold. Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, get it. I'll commend it to you. It's a worthy read. The ladies are reading through it right now on Monday nights and the ladies' time together. In volume one of his three-volume work, John Bunyan has, at the beginning of that uh, volume, John Bunyan has an autobiography. And if you're going to title your own autobiography, you need to title this. It's just it's ingenious. It's great. If I ever had one, this is what I'm going to entitle. I'm just going to steal it from Bunyan because it's such a good name. But this is the name, the title of his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Over 130 paragraphs. They number them so that you can reference it. And he begins in the first 20 paragraphs or so talking about his life uh, as he he was living it apart from God or any desire to have anything to do with God. And then in chapter 22, I'm going to read you a couple portions of this. I want you to hear this. In chapter 22, or paragraph 22, he says in this autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, a voice did suddenly dart from heaven into my soul, which said, which said, Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven? Or have thy sins and go to hell? And with that question creating turmoil in his soul, he 
set himself on a course to follow after God. Paragraph 30. Wherefore I fell to some outward reformation, both in my words and life, and did set the commandments before me for my way to heaven, which commandments I also strove to keep. So he's keeping the commandments. And as I thought, did keep them pretty well sometimes, and then I should have comfort. Yet now and then should break one, and so afflict my conscience. But then I should repent and say I was sorry for it, and promise God to do better next time, and there get help again. And then I thought I pleased God as well as any man in England. Paragraph 31. Thus I continued about a year, all which time our neighbors did take me to be a very godly man. So the people around him were seeing him as a godly man. A new and religious man and did marvel much to see such a great and famous alteration in my life and in my, in my manners. And did indeed so I was, and indeed so it was, though yet I knew not Christ nor grace nor faith, nor hope. And truly, as I have well seen since, had I then died, my state had been most fearful. He was going to church every Sunday. His neighbors were saying he was indeed a godly man, one who was reformed, not only in life, but in word. He goes on, and in paragraph 45, he makes the comment that in a period of two years... He said, I have read, he says, the Bible was so very precious to me in those days, I read it through several times. That's in just a few, maybe a year and a half to two years of his time that he was dealing with the things of God. This man Bunyan was seeking to approach God, to seek after God. And yet he says in his biography here that there was no Christ, no grace, no faith, no hope. This morning in our passage in Hebrews chapter 9, specifically verses 11 through 14, we're going to cover two whole sentences this morning. I don't usually get that small, but this text is so, has so much in it, I didn't want to just graze over it very quickly. But we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14, and if you scan through that, those are two sentences. And I want us to notice this this passage this morning within the context of what we looked at last Lord's Day. Last Lord's Day, I was sharing with you that the Hebrews pastor here was describing the tabernacle, verses 1 through 5, with all of its glory and all of its vestments and all of its furniture, and how that tabernacle was limited in its ability to give access to God. And then in verses 6 through 7, I talked about the services that the priests performed, how though they were very careful and very, um, very consistent in what they did, that they were, these services were limited in the effectiveness that it provided for God's people to remove their sin. So there was a limitation in access to God because of the sanctuary and all that was there, though it was beautiful and wonderful. There was limited access. And then though these services were very rigid and carefully done, 
according to every jot and tittle that needed to be taken care of, there was limited effect in way of removal of sin. And so it says in verses 8 through 10, it says specifically in verse 9, it says, excuse me, verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of this present age. Do you see that? This present age. So he says that the, the way to God is not genuinely open because there's still a tabernacle standing. And it's actually limiting our access to God. Then he goes on in chapter 9, verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of a worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until, here's another time period, until the time of reformation. See that? This present Age, according to verse 9, is going to transition into a time of reformation. And that was taking place right here as this pastor was preaching and during the time that they were living in. Well, what was that time of reformation? The time of reformation was when Christ would come. That's why in verse 11 it says, But when Christ appeared... In the stark reality of the limited nature of access to God through the sanctuary or the tabernacle, and in in relationship or in light of the limited nature of the uh, services that the priest would perform in order to bring people to God and remove their sin, in light of that, there needs to be a time of reformation take place. And it says, (coughs) in contrast to that present age, as it speaks of when the tabernacle and the priest were doing their duties, There is a time of reformation, and it occurs when Christ appears. That's why it mentions this contrast in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have to come, there's a contrast between verses 11 through 14 and verses 1 through 10. And this morning, I want us to look at that contrast and to notice that contrast. If you note, last Lord's Day, when I ended the message, I simply read verses 11 through 14. This morning, we're going to look at these in detail, and that's my desire is to understand this, this under, the, the, these verses 11 through 14 in relationship to verses 1 through 10. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. And we're going to do that in two particular points. Two points, one for each sentence. The first point is the sufficient access by Christ, verses 11 and 12. Our sufficient access by Christ, verses 11 and 12. And our efficient, excuse me, our sufficient Effect through Christ. Our sufficient access by Christ, verses 11 through 12, and our sufficient effect through Christ, verses 13 through 14. Verses 13 through 14. So I want us to note first our sufficient access by Christ. This, verses 11 through 12, is actually one sentence. One very long sentence. And in this sentence, there are three verbs, all pointing to Christ. There's the verb that Christ appeared, the object Christ who appeared. And in verse 12, Christ entered. And then at the end of verse 12, Christ secures our eternal redemption. Christ appeared, Christ entered, and Christ secured 
First, I want us to notice here that Christ appeared. I want us to notice this access. Specifically, I want us to consider the place of this access. Where does God, where does Christ give us access to? What's the place of this access? And it is connected, I believe, to Christ appearing. The idea of this word for appear is basically to arrive at a destination, to get to the end of your journey, to be where you were supposed to be all along. When Christ arrived at the end of his journey, he knew where he was. He was a high priest of the good things, and he was in, according to this passage, he was in, it says, through a greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. This place that Christ brought us to, he brought us to as a high priest of these good things. These good things, what are those good things? The good things are the benefits, the treasures, the things that Christ himself gives to us, all of those who are in Christ. It includes, but is not limited to, what we see in our passage this morning, which first and foremost is eternal redemption. And then what we'll see later on in verse 14, a purified conscience. Those are two of the many blessings that God brings to us. And both, all of us would say, aren't those two things, eternal redemption and a purified conscience, those are indeed good things. That Christ brings to us. And so as a high priest, he comes to us and he gives us these good things that are to come or to have come in Christ. In verse 11, it says, then he comes to this place through a greater and more perfect tent. A greater and more perfect tent. This tent is not one that's made with hands. It's not a part of this creation. It goes on in verse 11 and it says in parentheses, not made with hands. In other words, not like the tent that was made in verses 1 through 5. But he comes and he enters in through this tent that is not of this creation. That is not of this creation. He's connecting it for us back to verse 6 in chapter 9 where it says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. Some of your translations say first tent. The idea is the, the, the place where God resided, the first section, performing the ritual duties. And, but into the second section, or second, only the high priests go. And so he's saying, as the high priest went into this tabernacle or this tent that was made with hands, Christ as high priest is not doing that. Instead, he's entering into a greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands. He goes on and explains this to us later in chapter 9, verse 24. Chapter 9, verse 24 says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, that is, into the tabernacle, verse 24, when are, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Do you see that? Now to appear. Listen to this. This is good. Now to appear in the presence of God. Is there a period there? There's not a period there. Christ didn't leave us. Just go to heaven. It says that when he entered, not in the holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. For us. Christ enters into the very holy of holies. On our behalf, into heaven itself. And so this access, this sufficient access, that's very different from the access that the priests were giving to the people through this tabernacle, this, this place that was reflections and copies and shadows of what was holy, 
Christ goes into the very presence of our thrice holy God on our behalf. You see, this is a very different, indeed a superior, and a sufficient access. This isn't a picture of something that will be. This is the very presence of God that Christ goes into on our behalf. So this access is different than the access of verses 1 through 5 because Christ himself is going into the very presence of God. The next thing I want us to see is not only the place of this access, but the means of this access. By what means did Christ access or go into the presence of God? It says, we see this in verse 12, he entered, Christ entered once for all into these holy places. How? Not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. The blood's a precious thing, isn't it? It's the very thing that gives us life, and drained of it, we would not have life. This idea of blood in the New Testament, is a, it's a, well, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's an amazing study to do, just to go through and study the understanding of what blood meant. At the end of the day, to bring it all together, blood meant sacrifice. It meant giving of oneself. And in this case, we find, as we've noted in verse 7 of chapter 9, verse 7, it says that this high priest, um, it says in verse 7, but into the second, meaning this, this, this second section of the tent, which was the most holy place, right? The day of atonement. The, the high priest would go, and only the high priest goes, verse, verse 7, and he but once a year, notice what it says next, and not without taking blood. Because the very reason he was going into the most holy place was for the purpose of atoning for sin, showing them that they have been sinners, and bringing that blood and sprinkling it on the altar. And this blood of Christ is precious, friends. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood of Christ is precious. It is precious indeed. I find it interesting that it is the very motivation. You may, you may see this as maybe an aside, but, it's, but, but I think... It should grip me more, and it should grip us as elders more, and it should grip you as a congregation to pray for us as elders more. Notice the, the, the challenge that is given to the elders in Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders. Pay careful attention to them. Why is it that we are as elders and overseers to pay careful attention to the flock? We're to care for the church of God. To care for them, to nurture them, to to shepherd them. Why? Care for the church of God, Acts 20, verse 28, which God obtained with His own blood. You see... It's it's almost as if he's saying there's nothing more precious. I've purchased the church 
with my own blood. Nothing else has any value compared to that. Everything else pales in comparison to the church of which is valuable. Why? Because of the precious blood of Christ. So we see here that what means was it, what means did it take in order for God to be approached through Christ? What means was there? Well, it wasn't by the blood of goats. According to this passage, verse 12, it wasn't by means of blood of goats and calves, but instead by means of his own blood. So how does Christ bring us before God? By means of his precious blood. You see, this means is different than the means of the, of the Old Testament priests who came with the blood of goats and, and calves. It's different. And friends, it is superior to them, isn't it? Absolutely. Brothers and sisters, it is sufficient. There isn't nothing else that needs to be brought. When the blood of Christ is brought forth, all other arguments cease. All other things cease. We find, second, our third point under this, third, third understanding, is not only did Christ appear, not only did He enter, but thirdly, He secured this eternal redemption. And we see this specifically as the end of this access. We talked about the place of this access, the holy the, the heavens, the means of this access, the precious blood of Christ. And now I want us to consider the end of this access or the, or, or, the, or the goal of this access. And we see that it was for the purpose of securing eternal redemption. We note ver- first in verse 12 where it speaks of the fact that he entered once for all. And that's interesting in relationship to verse 7 where it speaks of where the high priest, again, I've read this before, the high priest says, but into the second, only the high priest goes, notice, and he but once a year. Now that's interesting because that speaks of the fact that the high priest there in the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, came into the most holy place with blood once a year, every year, over and over again, to redo and re-up and say we've sinned again and we need to come before God. But what we find here in verse 12 is that when Christ entered through his blood, through the means of the precious blood of Christ, it was for once, it was once for all. Not once a year, once for all. It was, according to what Christ said on the cross, it was finished. It was finished. He was securing this eternal redemption. This word for secure is interesting. It's actually the verb to find. And the idea here is one says, how God will find you. How God will find you. You know how God will find you when you're washed with the blood of Christ? Eternally redeemed. Not once a year redeemed, but eternally once for all redeemed. This idea of redeemed is the idea of being purchased. We saw a beautiful picture of that when Mike read for us in the Old Testament the story of Ruth. Read that story. It's only four chapters. It's a beautiful story of redemption. Did you hear when Mike was reading in chapter 4 of Ruth when they were trying to figure out how they were going to do that? And they said, um, I, I, can't, I can't redeem this. I can't do this. And then, and then Boaz comes in. And the idea there is basically Boaz is saying, I will redeem her. I will buy her out of her bondage. I will take her debt. I will purchase for myself her. 
not just to set her aside as a trophy, but as it goes on in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. You see, when the Lord purchases us, he doesn't do that to set us aside. He does that to give us life and to nourish us and to encourage us, to make us his own. When the Lord redeems us, he purchases us at a great price. That price was the blood of Christ. He redeemed us. So this access was into heaven, not into just some tent made with hands. It was by the blood of Christ, not just with blood of goats and calves. And it had an end of not just simply taking care of sin for a year, and then a year later they'll come back and have to do it again to re-up. But it was once for all. You see, this end... This goal in mind when Christ came to redeem his people was different than that which was done in the Old Testament. Indeed, it was superior to that which was done in the Old Testament. Friends, it was sufficient. This access was very important specifically to these Hebrews during this time. As we've talked many, many times as we've been working through the book of Hebrews, we know this scenario was very in a very tumultuous time for God's people during this area, during this time period of history. It was probably in the mid to late 60s. We know that um, the temple itself was destroyed in 70 A.D. Now, when the temple was destroyed, what do you think happens to the homes of the Christians if the temple was destroyed? Christianity was trying to be wiped out. Men and women were trying to care for their families. They were being thrown in jail. They were suffering and struggling for the faith. They were trying to keep things together, trying to make Christ primary. And in the midst of that, just like you and me, they began asking, where's God in the middle of all this? It's hard to see the Lord in the midst of this turmoil and struggle. It's hard to understand that he's present. And it's even harder to understand that we have access to him. Because, see, they had to, these people, had to walk away from every semblance of having access to God through this tabernacle. By means of these priests and the blood of goats and calves, they were being, they were being pulled away from that. They said, no, this is no longer our faith. It's that of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Now it's all in Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you feel far away from God... From his presence today, or some of you might do really well, maybe tomorrow that will happen. But all of us at some point in time look in our lives and wonder, where is God in the middle of all this? Know that you are eternally secure. By the means of blood, the blood of Christ, and that you will one day appear before the throne of God holy and accepted. Dear saints, always remember that Christ will not let you go. For Christ is not simply leading you to an earthly place here on earth. Your place is in heaven with Christ. Christ is not purchasing you with some limited blood of goats and calves. Christ has entered 
this place of heaven by means of the very precious blood of God. Christ does not have to come year after year to plead your case, to re-up your standing before God. Instead, Christ, once for all, with His sacrifice, founded and secured your salvation and eternal redemption forever. You see, friends, that's the truth. The lie that you're believing is, where is God? I don't see Him. That's the lie you're believing. The truth is that through the blood of Christ, we have access to God the Father, and that is secure and definitive. God is carrying us to Himself. So precious saints, lean on Christ. Come to Christ. Acknowledge that in Christ, you're not left alone. You're in the very presence of God Himself. You can find your hope there, your comfort there, specifically during a time of turmoil and struggle as these Christians were going through. And as we seek to find and walk out and live out our faith as well. Point number two, the sufficient effect through Christ. Our sufficient effect through Christ. Verses 13 through 14 are also one sentence, one major thought. And just as we were talking about the fact that earlier in verses 11 and 12... This pastor was confronting the limited access that the tabernacle would provide and that the priest provided. And he confronted that and said, In Christ we have sufficient and adequate and superior access to God the Father. Now he makes the turn. And in verses 9 and 10, in verses 9 and 10, he, he, he takes this portion which says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement... Gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only, circle that word only, only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So now he's making the turn. And he's saying, so Christ gave us sufficient access to God. And now in verses 13 through 14, he's saying, so in Christ we have sufficient and a sufficient effect in the washing away of our sins, indeed, and purifying our conscience. And he does this with an argument from lesser to greater. Verse 13 begins where, with, for if the blood of goats and bulls, do you see that? He finishes this section with verse 14. It's if, how much more then? If this is true, how much more will that be true? And that's the argument he's making here in verses 13 through 14. I want us to notice first these two rituals that he brings up in verse 13 that are Old Testament rituals. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. He's bringing up two rituals here. First is the blood of goats and bulls. This is speaking specifically of the Day of Atonement where bulls and goats were slaughtered there was this uh, blood sacrifice, and then they would take that blood and they would use it to sprinkle onto the altar, and they would have that as a blood sacrifice. And the sprinkling of this blood of these blood of these of these uh, goats and bulls was used for that purpose. The second one we probably don't know as much about. The first, the Day of Atonement, is actually Leviticus 16. If you'd like to read through that and see the specifics of how that works, but the second one we don't know as much about probably. That's in actually Numbers 19. Numbers 19, the book of Numbers, chapter 19. And it's considered, it says here, sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer. What they would do is they would take a, a red heifer, and, which is a cow, for those of you who haven't grown up on a farm. 
and they would go out to the, out, to the out, outer gates outside the city, and they would burn it all, everything. They wouldn't, they wouldn't clean it. They would burn the entire animal down to nothing but ashes. And they would gather those ashes up, and they would use them throughout the year. This was a continual thing. This wasn't just the Day of Atonement. If somebody had maybe touched a dead body or maybe even touched the bone of a, car, a bone or a carcass of some animal, and one of the people in the, in the congregation or in God's people were defiled. This is ceremonially unclean. That's the word here used in verse 13. That person is defiled or ceremonially unclean. They would come to the priest. The priest would take some of these ashes of this heifer that he had burned outside the city. And he would take that, and it says they, they would actually mix it with what they call the first use, living water, which basically means running water, fresh water. They would take this fresh water, and they would take these ashes from this heifer. They would mix it together, and then they'd sprinkle this mixture onto this person. And after seven days, they would be officially no longer defiled, and they would be ceremonially clean. What he's saying here is this. Let me get back to the point here. He says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if this will sanctify for the, it sanctifies for the purification of flesh. In other words, if it outwardly cleanses these people. And, he, and he's not saying it doesn't. He's saying that this is what God ordained to say you need to do in order to outwardly cleanse these people. That, and it works. It, it, this is what God says will happen. If you do these things, then you are sanctified. You are clean. If you read both of those chapters, Leviticus 16, Numbers 19, that's what's declared of the people when they go through these rituals and these rites. But if this sanctifying or the purification of their flesh or externals is true, verse 14, how much more? Do you see the argument? See the way to the argument here? The argument is this. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Well, the answer is far much more. In fact, the blood of Christ is sufficient. If the blood of bulls and goats and the, and the ashes of a heifer can sanctify to the purification of the outward body, how much more can the blood of Christ cleanse us inwardly? Well, so much more. Sufficient. So why is the blood of Christ why is the blood of Christ more sufficient or more um, can accomplish more than the blood of goats and heifers? Well, we see this in verse 14. Why is it that the, this, this blood of Christ can accomplish more? Well, first we see that it was done, according to verse 14, this blood of Christ who is through the eternal spirit. You see that? See, the idea is this. It was not simply mere rote ritual of, okay, it's the time on the calendar for us to go and burn the heifer out outside the fence, or it's time on the calendar for us to do the sin offering and to kill the animals and to do the things. And we know that in the Old Testament, what did God's people constantly do? They were doing the sacrifices without their heart in it because they got into this rote, ritualistic, we just go through the motions and do this. But this sacrifice of Christ was through the eternal spirit. It was empowered and influenced by the very spirit of God. God himself said, it is time. Send the Christ child into the world. Let him live a perfect sonless life and then send him to the cross. There was not a step that wasn't providentially ordained by God. This wasn't some, okay, it's time to do this. Let's, let's go through this rote ritual. No, 
God Himself, through the eternal Spirit, sent Jesus Christ in a determined, specific, careful way to accomplish something profound. And so we find that this blood of Christ wasn't just done as so many in the Old Testament were doing, this rote ritual, but instead it was done by the very Spirit, influenced and empowered by the very Spirit of God. We see as well that this blood of Christ is more significant, accomplishes more. Why? Because here it says, He offered Himself without blemish to God. Now that's incredibly different compared to the animals, right? Did the, did the goats and bulls offer themselves? No. They were taken. Christ came. And he, he wasn't drugged to the cross. He walked there. He wasn't made to go. He went in obedience to his Father. And this is what we call as a voluntary sacrifice. The theologians use a big $10 word called a vicarious sacrifice. Meaning, meaning this is exactly what it means. This is what the Hebrew pastor says. The Hebrew pastor says it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded with such great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight that sin cleanses and endures. Verse 2 of chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God and throne. He took it. He offered himself. We notice here that not only was it done by the power and influence of the eternal spirit, not only was it voluntary, but according to this, it has a profound result that's different from verse 9 of chapter 9. It says that these rituals and things that the, that the priests were doing could not, according to verse 9, cannot perfect the conscience. But look at verse 14. It says, He offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Conscience is, conscience is simply this, the whole person before the eyes of a holy God. The whole person before the eyes of a holy God. You see, we've lost our conscience today because we don't believe we stand before a holy God. The world out there doesn't have a conscience because they don't acknowledge that there's a holy God that they're standing before. They don't understand that God is seeing us. God knows what we're doing. His eyes are ever on us, evaluating. We know that we have a conscience, don't we? Let me give you an example. Maybe an illustration will help for us to really solidify what a conscience is. And I don't think I need to do this very much, so I'm just going to give you a, a, an illustration, and I think it will simply rest on you what exactly this is. David sinned against Bathsheba, did he not? It was up to a year prior to all the ordeal happening before Bathsheba ended up losing the baby and him actually confessing or coming out with the fact that he um, had sinned in any way. He was holding that inside of him, that sin of Bathsheba and the way he profoundly dishonored God but also dishonored himself and dishonored Bathsheba in every way. Most think that David wrote Psalm 32 during that time when he was holding it all in, when he was trying to keep it under wraps. Psalm 32 says, 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's a man who's trying to figure out how he can get his sin forgiven, how he can get his sin covered before God. Because, see, he's exposed, not to everybody in his kingdom, but before God. You see, he has a conscience. Psalm 32, blessed is the man, verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Happy is that man. Now, if you read Psalm 32, this man that's writing this psalm is not happy. He's making this case that others are happy because they've been forgiven their sin. I'm holding it in. Listen to what he says. Here's, here's, here's the illustration of conscience. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That's conscience, isn't it? You know it. You felt it. You may be feeling it. <laughs> That's a conscience. Day and night your hand is heavy upon me. My strength is dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 14. Coming to Christ in His vicarious blood sacrifice is the only place, hear me, the only place where we can find relief from this heavy hand of God which is on us day and night. In Christ is the only place we can go to find relief from this God who is holy and has His heavy hand upon us day and night. Anywhere else we look will cause our strength to dry up and we will be driven deeper and deeper in despair. You know it's true. Brothers and sisters, come to Christ. If you're, if you're filled with guilt and overladen, come to Christ. In Christ, your conscience will be purified. Let me make a, a little sharper point on this. It says here that your conscience is purified, according to verse 14, from dead works. What are dead works? Dead works are any work which is done in our own strength and for our own glory. Now listen to this. Dead works is not only just bad things that we do, but it's also good things that we do in an attempt to find favor with God on our own. It's the good things that we try to do to find favor with our God. These are all just like the ashes of heifers. In the blood of goats and calves. And we bring them before God and say, is this enough? And God says, you have limited effect. It may make you feel better. It may make you look better. It may be, make you, like John Bunyan, be favorable for all the people in the city and in his church. He looks like a religious man. His, his, his activities are better. Friends, it's dead works. Because there's only one work that is necessary for us to stand before God, and it is Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel itself. Let me tell you what we actually believe as Christians. You want to know what our creed is? You know what we really believe in the, in the depths of our soul? This is what we believe. I must try harder. That's what we think our Christianity is. That's our default when we're not thinking. 
That's the thing we go after when we want to be right with God and we're scrambling because our conscience is all over the place. I must try harder. Take your I must try harder and come before God and see if it works. It's the ashes of heifer. It's the blood of goats and animals. It will not be effective before our holy God. Friends, I must try harder is an assault to the finished work of what Christ said is done. You're saying, it's not enough. I've got to do this and it has to be Christ and my stuff that I bring to Him. It's an assault to Christ Himself. You're saying, He's not enough. What He's done, I must try harder. I must do better. What does life lived with a purified conscience look like? Well, don't look at me because I'm wavering. I'm, I'm a... I'm a star wandering in the sky. But it does seem that as one who is purified with conscience, you're free now from the bondage of fear, of guilt. You no longer have the heavy hand of God upon you because of what Christ has done for you. And you're able to serve and honor Him lovingly and out of a heart that's not burdensome, that's not guilt-ridden, that's not burden-downed, but instead one that comes to Christ and says, I have the privilege of honoring and serving you. You see, I believe the list that we make of things that we're supposed to do in order to honor God is vast, would be vastly different if we threw away the list and said, let's just trust Christ. There's a different list there, friends. It doesn't look the same. Because our understanding of what righteousness needs to be before God and God's understanding of what righteousness is in Christ are profoundly different. It's two different Gospels. Let me close this morning by reading the end of Bunyan's testimony. Did you wonder why I read the beginning of it for you? I want to read the end of of Bunyan's biography, autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. I love it. 200 paragraphs later, I read you paragraph 30, 35, 40, I think, earlier in the beginning. This is paragraph 229. Paragraph 229. Through this 200 paragraphs, he's back and forth trying to figure out how he can be what God wants him to be. And he he goes hard for a few months and doing well. And then he falls off the wagon and he just wallers in guilt and despair. It's amazing to read his, his ardent attempts to please God, reading his Bible over and over and over again. Every several paragraphs, he says, I finished reading my Bible all over again. Paragraph 229. But one day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with, my, with some dashes on my conscience. You see, he's, he's dealing with this. He was passing in the field with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest... Yet all was not right. That guilt was pushing down on me. Suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. My righteousness is in heaven. You mean it's not here? My righteousness is in heaven. That phrase fell on his soul. I thought to myself... I saw with my very own eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at the right hand 
There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was and whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants my righteousness, for it was right before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was, listen to this, because so many of you, including me, live this way. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made me made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Next paragraph. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my affliction and my irons, my temptations had fled away, so that from that time, those dreadful scriptures, do you hear that? The scriptures that were condemning him and that was heaping all this guilt on his heart, these dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me now. Now went, now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Final paragraph. It was glorious to me to see his exaltation and the worth and prevalence of all of his benefits, and that because of this, here it is, now I could look from myself to him. Now I could look from myself to him and should reckon that all those graces of God that now were green in me, so he's, he's acknowledging that he is converted for the first time after all those years of agonizing over the scriptures and being just wonderfully accepted by the church and everybody around him. All these graces that are now green in me were yet but like those ground, fine, finely ground grains and precious coins that rich men carry in their purses and the gold that they keep in their trunks at home. Oh, I saw my gold was in my trunk in my heavenly home. In Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Now Christ was all for me. All my wisdom. All my righteousness. All my sanctification. And all my redemption. You see, friends, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Through Christ, we have access to God the Father. Through Christ, we have a pure conscience. Come to Christ. Let us pray.